good evening to everybody. It's good to see you. Thank you for coming on a Tuesday evening to be able to worship God together and study the Bible. Thank you for letting me talk with you about the very, very, very most important thing that can occupy our minds. And I hope and pray that God will use this hour and take us in every respect as far as it is possible for Him to take us that we will comply with His will and all the good possible be realized. That's kind of what I've been praying for this meeting, and I'm sure grateful for God and His blessings He has given to Kim and I, and I'm sure grateful for the opportunity to be with you guys, our brothers and sisters in Christ here in Nicholasville. It's been a really, really great joy <clears throat> to be with you. Uh, there are some folks here tonight who's... Uh, whose love and patience and kindness go all the way back to Goochtown, Kentucky in 1977, where the church there gave me a chance to start preaching. And uh, their love is our friendship. It's still intact, and uh, their influence is still there, and I'm so grateful for them. Thank them for coming tonight. Uh, You all have, I know, a special treat tonight with uh, Eddie here. Uh, You all know him from Nicholasville. I know him. From uh, his, he has a special place in my heart because of Paris, Kentucky, where Kim and I and our family lived, and sure appreciate him and his work. I want to say thanks to the uh, Christians here for letting me come. Thank you for all of you guys. You have been so hospitable and kind and thoughtful uh, to us. You've been encouraging. I only wish that we'd had more time to talk after services and more time to talk before services. Uh, there, several conversations have been cut short because we just have to. Go to what's next. And uh, thank you for what's important to you and what you're trying to do and how you feel about trying to serve the Lord. And may God bless your work here. Uh, May unity uh, characterize you, love, hard work, shoulder to shoulder. May you glorify God here. May He take you where He wants you to go. We've enjoyed staying with uh, Blevinses, uh, Kyle and Holly, and those boys. Uh, we haven't been just guests. We've, it's been fun to stay at their house. You know, it's awful quiet. Not much really goes on there. But but we really, really we've had fun anyway. <clears throat> we've had a good time. And those those kids are so special. I know you know them and love them, and we do too now. And, it's been a lot of fun. They, they've been kind to us, and thank you both for all you've done to make our stay just wonderful in, in every way. Come on up to Newcastle. Uh, Kim said that our GPS said we're three and a half hours away from home, and we'll be leaving after services tonight heading that way. So uh, you're all welcome to come up to Newcastle. We've got place for you, and there are some Christians there we'd like to introduce you to. Uh, we'd love to have you come up our way sometime. Well, we've been studying, as uh, uh, Kyle has mentioned, we've been studying the subject of worship with a particular emphasis upon the place of emotion in worship. We've uh, talked about what emotion is, <clears throat> I mean, what worship is. And we've really kind of addressed three subjects with worship as the background, worship and emotion and praise. Those are three themes we've touched on already. And what's true about all three of those, worship and emotion and praise, is that they are byproducts of fundamental, personal, inside things about our faith, our awareness of God, our appreciation for God. And there is no shortcut to worship and emotion and praise. We can't just kind of rev that up on cue uh, to be all right with God. Uh, the only way we can do all of that is for these inside things to be taken care of. <coughs> and it's been a, a really helpful thing for me to realize that, and it's taken away all this artificial, um, insincere feeling that sometimes is attached with all that stuff, and it makes it real. And uh, so I, I hope some of that has been communicated and and, and you all can take these things and understand them more deeply and practice them more fully. What I want to talk about tonight has to do, has to do with the authority God has, the right that He has to uh, dictate and to regulate our worship to Him. 
And so I want to kind of tie all of this up as we bow before uh, the authority of Jesus Christ as the head of His church and, and, and as our Lord. In John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, Jesus said, An hour is coming and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We're trying to be, we're trying to clearly understand what it takes to be the kind of worshipers that God is looking for. We've been talking about that all along. The best I can tell from an examination of the New Testament is that the worship of a church that belongs to Christ, the worship of that church as ordained by God, is a very simple thing. And I've tried. I've looked very carefully with one thought in mind. What does the New Testament say about the worship of God participated in by a team of Christians? And it is profoundly simple. It springs from people who have given thought to God, who have listened to His Word, who have faith in Jesus. In fact, whose lives are built on Christ and who are seeking things that are above, who trust His promises above everything else. Those are the people who worship God and those who benefit from this simple worship that we find revealed in the New Testament are the people whose focus is squarely upon God, seeking to praise and glorify Him. He is their focus. When you count them, including the special things that take place on Sunday... We find there are five things that Christians guided by apostolic teaching did. Number one, they took the Lord's Supper. Number two, they pooled contributions of money. And they did these first two things every Sunday. And then on Sundays and various other days and various other times, these Christians teamed together, did three other things. They prayed, they sang psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and there was preaching or teaching from the Bible, from the Scriptures. Five items of worship. It pains me just a little bit, to be honest with you, it pains me just a little bit to use the phrase, five items of worship. But I'm doing it intentionally, obviously, and over personal pain, I'm doing that. Because I think there are some who think that giving attention to counting them, giving attention to identifying what we are supposed to do, searching the Scripture, searching the New Testament to say, what is it that Christians, under the guidance of apostolic teaching, what were they to do in their worship to God? I think there are people who suppose that such attention to what Christians are to do to be pleasing to God, somehow necessarily brings with it little or less attention to how it's supposed to be done. And talking about five items of worship sort of takes worship out of that which is emotional, out of that which is associated with praise to God and relegates it to a dusty 
musty, unemotional, boring, routine five items of worship. That somehow people think they're going to be alright when they come in the door on the appointed times, on the right day, and they sit in their pew and they, and they put in their time until they can check off those five musty, dusty items of worship and then they leave and, qualify, and feel like they have been qualified as worshipers of God. Now I want to say... That it is our responsibility because Jesus, because the Father is looking for people who will worship Him in spirit and truth. It is our responsibility to know what God wants us to do. And make sure that we are people who bring to the table exactly what God wants us to bring to the table as it pertains to worship to Him. And there is nothing musty, nothing dusty, nothing routine, no checklist. That, that concept that is, in my experience, sort of, sort of associated with the phrase five items of worship, that concept of worship is foreign to the New Testament and it is not what this group of Christians and this preacher is about at all. In fact... We will go to war against turning that which is holy and strikes to the very heart of our soul into something like that. We will go to war against that concept, that that destructive work of worship. We want to do things God's way and we mean that at every level. We want to be worshipers that God is looking for who worship in spirit and in truth. Do you ever wonder what the next generation of Christians will stand for? Do you ever wonder what the next generation of Christians are going to believe? What they're going to preach and affirm and say it like they mean it? And then stand up for it and practice it after they say it? You ever wonder what the next generation of Christians might might look like? You ever wonder what the next generation of Christians might look like as it pertains to the subject of worship? And maybe if we look in the right places, we're already seeing hints in some ways and among some people of what that might look like. Do you think that they will insist on following what the New Testament teaches about worship? Both what is to be done, and how it is to be done. Or, do you think that they'll be open to other ideas? Yes, we we respect the New Testament, and it's fine to pray, and it's fine to take the Lord's Supper, but, you know, uh, we we need need to be moved. This is is supposed to be be something that changes us, and maybe we need to consider other things. Might, might, Might that be the thinking of the next generation? God knows the, the answer, the ultimate answer to that. But I do want to say that, that the answer, at least in, on our level, is not going to be found by, a next, by the next generation repeating things that they have heard from this generation of Christians or from some past generation of Christians. We speak where the Bible speaks, we're silent where the Bible silent. We do Bible things in Bible ways, we call Bible things by Bible name. That's a fine thing to say. In fact, I think that's a right thing to say. But that is an easy thing to say without putting it into practice. And so what I'll I'll say, whatever the next generation is going to do is going to go far beyond whatever phrases they might be familiar with. And the real proof is going to be what is preached. What is preached with conviction. What is practiced on the basis of what is preached. What is put into action. That will at last show what this next generation believes in where they'll stand. Now having said that about our time, I want to take you back in time a little bit. Go to the book of Judges, if you will, to chapter 2. And uh, we'll notice that Jesus, or excuse me, we'll notice that God was interested in finding out what the next generation of His people were going to be like and do 
That the question I've sort of posed for us is a legitimate one because it is a question that we'll see in uh, Judges chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, that God was interested in finding out concerning the next generation of the children of Israel. Judges 2, verses 21 and 22 tell us that as the children of Israel were preparing to go into the promised land, God did not drive out all of the nations. And He did it purposefully. And uh, we'll, we'll see a little bit about why that was done here in these two verses. I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did, or not. So, what's this generation going to do? Are they going to, are they going to keep the way of the Lord and walk in the ways of the Lord or not? God says, I want to know. And here's how I'm going to find out. I'm going to see how they handle the problems that arise with some of the nations that are left in the land. <coughs> Well, as you read the book of Judges, the, uh, the answer that, that the people presented to God was a very sad, very sad answer. In fact, the book of Judges is one of the saddest books in all of the Bible. Now, for reasons that are described in passages like Judges chapter 17 and verse number 6, in those days there was no king in Israel... Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now God was waiting to see, are they going to keep the way of the Lord and walk in it? Well, no. They decided that they would follow, they would do what every man thought was right in their own eyes. And, of course, the same phrase is repeated at the end of the book. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God sadly discovered that for that generation, instead of each person being very careful to know what God wants and follow it, and follow God in the way God wants to be followed, instead of that, they thought, you know... Let's kind of look elsewhere. I feel like this would be better. I like that. My people prefer this. Let's do some of this. And the result was spiritual tragedy. Sad years. But what happened in the book of Judges was was an example in history of failure... In regard to a respect for God that I want to just spend a moment identifying. Here is the principle. Here's the core of the problem. In Proverbs chapter 14, Proverbs chapter 14 and verse number 12. Proverbs 14 verse 12. There is a way which seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. The, the principle that, I, that, that here the Holy Spirit presents through Solomon, there are two choices. There's what, there's what man might think or what seems to them to be right, but that's no way to live. That's no way to make decisions. That's not the right way to go. You're not going to please God. In fact, that's the way that ends in death. Don't go that way. And yet we're, I mean, the people in in the days of Judges were doing that. Every man did what was right in their own eyes. And we're living in a time in which everyone is entitled to believe what they want to, follow what they want to, you feel this way, you believe that way. Every man's doing what was right in their own eyes. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse number 23. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man 
who walks to direct his steps. Okay, we've, this generation, the next generation, has got to get this real clear in their minds. It is not within us to have the ability to direct our own steps. And that goes against pride, that goes against Americanism, that goes against, whew, that goes against a lot of things. Okay, there's a choice. Do what you think is right in your own eyes or, or submit your will to the will of God. You do what you think is right, it's the way of death. You're, you're, you're taking on yourself something that you're just not equipped to do. God is the one who has the right and the authority and who has demonstrated the ability to do good in directing us in the ways that are right. <coughs> Excuse me. Look in Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, and uh, we'll just talk about the first few verses of that. The story is, of course, uh, <clears throat> Nadab and Abihu. And as they came to worship, they brought uh, fire for incense. <clears throat> and it is described in verse 1 as strange fire. And it was strange fire... That was the description because it was, it was fire which the Lord had not commanded them. They did something that the Lord had not commanded them. The Lord wasn't standing behind their choice. The Lord wasn't standing behind their decision. The Lord wasn't directing their actions. They did what was right in their own eyes. They did what the Lord had not commanded them. And fire came from heaven and completely consumed them. But, but it is in verse number 3 that, that the, the essence of what happened is described. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all people, I will be honored. What is it that Nadab and Abihu did that was so wrong? According to verse 3, they did not treat God as holy. They did not honor God. How did they show they didn't treat God as holy? How did they, how did they manifest to God that they did not honor Him? They did those things when they, when they did what God had not commanded them. When they went outside of what God had authorized. They were not treating God as holy and they were not honoring Him. And so what might have looked to the eyes of men as something trivial, it was not trivial at all. It was profoundly irreverent. And their punishment was just and appropriate. God needs to be treated as holy and He needs to be honored and we need to act within what God has commanded. We've got to stay there. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> Uzzah reached up to steady the ark. The ark of the covenant when he thought it was, when it was teetering and he thought it was going to fall. And, and he reached up to steady it, and he was struck dead, because the ark was not to be touched. David saw this, and David was troubled by this. Thought that said that, that something inappropriate, that God had acted in a, in, a, in a bad way about all of this. But when you read the passage, the word irreverence is used. What Uzzah did was an act of irreverence. God has spoken. We must do what God has spoken. So when, when, when every man does what's right in their own eyes, then they or that generation proves the tragedy that was, that was first or is spoken of in the book of Judges. They repeat that same thing in their generation. As it relates to worship, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 and verse number 9 <clears throat> uh, that those who worship in vain are those who teach as doctrines the commandments of men. Their worship 
They still know the name God. They still worship God. But their worship is like the striving after the wind. They, they try, they expend energy, but it accomplishes nothing. They try, they bring it in, and there's nothing there. It's empty. Why? Because they're teaching as their doctrines the commandments of men. Okay, so the, the problem with the generation discussed in the book of Judges, the, the, the problem was a fundamental one in which the, the authority of God was marginalized. There is another way, however, in which things can and should be done. Still, for just a moment in the Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, <clears throat> the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The, the, the other way of approaching things, besides doing what's right in your own eyes, going outside the commandments of the Lord, treating God with irreverence, the other way of doing that is to resolve with, the, with fear of the Lord to keep His commandments. And that this fundamental approach to God, that fits everybody. It applies to every person. It fits you and you and you and fits these people. It fits everybody. That, that's, what, that's what we're all supposed to do. Fear God and we keep His commandments. Jesus taught this principle in His earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 down to verse number 23. We'll, we'll just read part of that. Matthew 7 verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. <clears throat> Who's going to go to heaven? Those who do the will of the Father. And the people who will know Jesus, and they will appeal to Him, they will know Him as Lord, and will call Him such. But only those who do the will of the Father will enter heaven. And then in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Okay, these are, I know these are, are fundamental, they're basic passages that that teach so clearly that we've got to do things according to God's will. We've got to do things God's way. He's the boss. He's the head. And generations in the past have gone astray because they have thought it might be alright to do things their own way. The challenge facing this generation and the next one is don't do that. Fear God and keep His commandments. Stay with what is written. Now, I'm going to get back to five items of worship here just in a minute and close this thing out by coming back there. But, but right now, I'm, I'm just laying out these two fundamental ways of looking at one's relationship to God. And from the beginning all the way through the end, it is God who is holy and to be feared and held in reverence. And so we, we act and work and live within His teachings without the presumption. You know what? I think it might be alright that we do this or that. That gets every generation in trouble. And the Bible shows us examples of that and an explanation as to why. May we measure every teaching by the truth of Scripture. May we resolve that on the basis of Jesus Christ and His authority, we will preach the Word however popular or unpopular it is. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And when anybody teaches, we will love God and we will love that teacher enough to open the Scriptures and examine what that teacher says by what is written. 
Because however much we might like him, or however much we want, might not want to ruffle anybody's feathers, what matters most is that we affirm what the Scriptures teach. And so we've got to be people who do what Acts chapter 17 verse 11 says. We have got to be people who live with the Scriptures open and are willing to measure what people say by what the Scriptures teach. And that is a way of showing our reverence to God. Not trying to cause trouble or be legalists or things like that. We are trying to pay reverence to God who has spoken to us. And we must abide with reverence within what He has revealed to us. Otherwise, we follow the same tragic examples and walk in the same tragic steps of, an, of other generations. So let me kind of wrap all this up by asking you to turn to uh, the book of Malachi, and the last book in your Old Testament, <clears throat> and uh, just say a couple things about this book. We want to look verse number, uh, verse. We want to look first at chapter 1, verse 13, where we get to see the problem. God is uh, uh, deeply disturbed by what He saw among His people in the days of the prophet Malachi. And chapter 1, verse 13 says this, You also say, God talking to the, the people of Israel, You also say, My, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? Okay, much of, much of what Malachi is addressing is the worship of the children of Israel. And it stinks. It is rotten. It is a mess, and it is sickening to God. And his wish is that somebody would just care enough to get up and close the door. Just put a stop to this mess. That's how God felt about all of it. You can read the, the whole story in the book of Malachi. Now, what I want to point out about this is that, the, that, is that I want you to think where the, where the problem was. What's the problem here in the book of Malachi? They were bored to death at their worship. Did you know, maybe you didn't, I didn't know until I counted. The book of Malachi identifies five items of worship. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Let me name them to you. Five items of worship. Number one, the burning of incense. Number two, prayer. Number three, the offering of sacrifices. Number four, paying of tithes. And number five, instruction. Malachi talks about five items of worship. Now, <clears throat> let's just suppose for a second that we, we, we kind of have a sneak peek and we kind of know where the problem is. The problem with those five items of worship, they've been around for a long, they've been around a thousand years. And they're musty and dusty and we, we just need to jazz things up a little bit and we need to add some stuff, we need to take away some stuff, we need to remodel all this. this the real problem is we got these five troublesome items of worship. Let's just imagine that we are as critical of Malachi's five items of worship as some people are today of those who will say that the New Testament teaches there are five items of worship. Let's just imagine that's what's going on in the, day of Malachi, in the days of Malachi. Okay, I got it. I understand that. You know what? That wasn't the problem. There wasn't a thing wrong with offering incense, prayers, <coughs> sacrifice, paying tithes, and instruction. In fact, if a Jew was to do otherwise than that, they'd be wrong. That's exactly what God expected the people to do. Oh, so there's nothing wrong with five items worth. That's right. There's nothing. In fact, there's everything right with five items worth. Okay, well, what's wrong? Where, where, where is the problem? Great question. Great question. Let's look at Malachi and listen as God points his finger exactly where the problem is. Chapter 1, verse number 2. God says, I have loved you, 
says the Lord. (coughs) But you say, how have you loved us? (coughs) Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet (coughs) I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. I have made his mountain a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says... We have beaten, we have been beaten down, but, but will we return and build the ruins? Thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will tear down. The men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. There was an obvious Failure in their love for God. Or look at verse number 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Notice in verse number 6, he says, where is my respect? And where is my honor? The problem was not their, their, their carrying out five items of worship. The failure was that they weren't loving God. They weren't honoring God. They weren't paying respect to God. And the, the, the discussion continues. Look at verse number 11, chapter 1. For from the rising of the sun even to, the, to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered in my name, or offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. And then skip down to uh, verse number 14. But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So, verse 11, the the name of the Lord is great, and it is great among the nations. But Israel's not treating him as great. He is a great king, and he is to be feared among the nations. But Israel is not fearing him. The problem is not with five items of worship. The problem is with the heart of the people who have left the Lord and who are mindlessly walking through five items of worship, and they are bored to death and falling asleep while they're doing it. And God sees their irreverence. There's no love in their heart. There's no fear of the Lord. There's no regard for the greatness of the Lord. That's the problem. And until that problem is fixed, they can continue to offer their sacrifices and burn their incense, and God will say, someone please shut these doors. There's no worship going on there. They've got to take care of what's happening on the inside. Or chapter 2, verse number 15. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? And then listen to the end of verse 15. Take heed then to your spirit. Take heed then to your spirit. And let no one deal treacherously against the wife of you. The problem was in the spirit of the worshiper. And then uh, one other, chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes, the ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of great and terrible day of the Lord. And He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The failure was not five items of worship. That's not the bad guy. That's not the elephant in the room. That's not what needs to be tweaked and changed. That's not what accumulates the dust. What accumulates the dust is a dead spirit. 
A spirit that needs to be revived. A heart that needs to be restored. Greatness for the Lord that needs to be revived. Honor and respect for the Lord in the hearts of people. When that is there, and they offer their incense, and their prayers, and their sacrifices, and their tithes, and their, and their instruction, then you have people who are worshiping in spirit and in truth. And a failure in that regard is what the book of Malachi is showing for us, and I hope in a helpful way. <coughs> now, I'm not trying in any way to defend five items of worship or, let me say it this way, I'm not trying to defend some cold, musty, dusty, ritualistic form of worship. I'm not trying to defend something that is unemotional and unmoving and say, okay, we've just got to be people who bite the bullet and this is what we're supposed to do. I'm not trying to defend that kind of stuff. In fact, I hope those of you who've been a part of these studies from Sunday morning on know that the Bible pleads with us to be everything against that kind of stuff. But we need to be people who are resolved to do things God's way. But doing things God's way is not solved by doing different things. Now I am told that uh, radical worship is a catchphrase. It has been for a few years, kind of a catchphrase now this generation. Let's just find radical worship. And so I decided I'd find out a little bit more what radical worship is about. And I found, I think, an extreme example, but I want to share with you. Here's an idea that somebody who looks smart and dressed nicely, and his face was on the website, and he looked like a very intelligent man, and I guess some thought he was. And he, he was going to explain, and I'm going to summarize for you, here's how you can make your worship, get, this is what will turn it around. This will get it going. He offers three suggestions. Number one, move your services to an abandoned church building. Move your services on a Sunday morning to an abandoned church building. And let the theme of your services that day be dead and dying churches. And that will really help things where you are. Number two suggestion. Do the whole service in reverse. Start with a closing prayer and work backwards. That will revitalize everybody, won't it? And then this man's third suggestion. This is real life. His third suggestion that would really make things radical in terms of worship is to let six or seven children deliver the sermon one Sunday morning. That'll do it, won't it? That'll get everybody fired up. Now, I hope, I, I didn't, haven't done a lot of research on this. I hope that what I, have, what I read and what I've just described, I hope that is an extreme example. And I hope there aren't very many people who think that way. But this example does let us say this. That this is an example of the shallow thinking, the folly of trying to make worship radical by changing outward things. That has never been the problem, and that has never been the solution. You don't don't make worship radical by worshiping in abandoned church buildings, or turning things backwards, or letting children preach. What What a superficial approach to worship. We must resolve that we, we, we do what the Lord, our Master, tells us to do. We fear God and we keep His commandments. But we do that in a way consistent with, and here comes the hard part, here comes the you and me part. We do that in a way consistent with an awe-filled life. We do that in a way consistent with a faithful and loving life that that is daily walking with God and is in awe of what He has taught, of who He is, what He has done, and what He continues to do. 
And it is just such hearts that come together as a team and do what the Lord tells them to do that results in worship in spirit and in truth. And there are no shortcuts to that. And it is something that every one of us has got to, we've got to wade into that. Every one of us. There are no spectators to this. So let me close by making a few suggestions. Maybe it would be a good idea for families to prepare before they come to an assembly of Christians to worship God. For families to prepare. Maybe they could prepare by singing together. Or on the way to the church building, listening to psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Maybe a family could gather together and pray. Mom, dad, children, grandchildren, grandma and grandpa, whoever the family unit is, pray about what they're getting ready to do. Or have some scripture reading before they leave to prepare their minds. Or when services are over and you go home, you you remind everybody that we've been able to worship God, but now we continue to live in His presence. And so watch for what He has done. See His handiwork everywhere. In everything, pray to God. And so you live your lives daily with Him. Those who are leading a congregation in worship, prepare your heart to be a worshiper. Think about the songs you're going to be leading or the prayers you're going to be leading. Write some things down. Pray about your praying. Pray about your song leading. If you want people to worship in spirit and truth, be someone who is worshiping in spirit and truth yourself as you help others do the same. If you're going to help pass the Lord's Supper and help a congregation take it in spirit and truth, you'd be someone standing here who has prepared your mind to be one who is worshiping in spirit and truth yourself. Take what you're doing seriously. If you're preaching the Word, Make sure that you're prepared with what you're doing. You're you're speaking the truth after it has first filled you. If there is a phrase that I want you to take with you as a result of these lessons, it is this. Only filled people can worship. Only filled people can worship. And apply it to a preacher or anybody else or whether there's a public role involved or a private role, it doesn't make any difference. Only filled people can worship. Don't let your part in a church or your part leading in worship, don't let it reinforce the idea that what's going on is boring, routine, or dry. Understand that the goal is for all of us to be true worshipers and prepare yourself And help in every way you can others to do the same. We're not changing God's way at all. In fact, we want to be people who do things God's way. But what we're hoping that we can do as we do things God's way is to do that in an excellent way. He is worthy of that. Do it in an excellent way. And as much as we can, help others to do the same. So in closing, our whole study of worship in these five lessons, our whole study has led us to address our own personal spirituality. If I thought as I started the study of these lessons and the preparation of them that I was going to talk about sort of congregational worship, or if you thought that when Phil Morgan comes here, he's going to talk to us about congregational worship, I mean, we'd all miss the mark, wouldn't we? Because congregational worship, it is a byproduct of whatever's going on inside everybody who's a part of this assembly. It's a byproduct. And so the real issue, the, the, real, the core of all this is our spirituality. And we have got to be men and women, boys and girls, who, 
who are seeking things that are above. The language of Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 is just so profoundly clear on this. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, those who have been raised up with Christ keep seeking things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. You've been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking things that are above. Set your mind on things above. Christ is your life. There you go. That is, those are the things, that's the language of our own spirituality that I hope these lessons challenge us to seriously address. And when a team of people come together to do what God asks us to do, and they have prepared that way, the result will be worship that's in spirit and truth, and that is exactly the kind of worship that the Father is looking for. John 4, verse 23 and 24. There is no cheap or superficial shortcut to this. If you don't address personal spirituality, you'll never get to worship. It'll never happen. We've got to be people who slow down. We've got to be people who simplify. We've got to be people who read our Bible and are serious about it. Who pray and plan to pray. And who spend a long time praying. We've got to be people who think about what we see and hear. We've got to be people who meditate on what God has said and what has happened. We've got to be people who stand in awe of God. We've got to be people who do things God's way. We've got to be people who are filled. If we ever hope to be people who will worship God in spirit and truth. I really appreciate, in a personal way, what you have done for me by asking me to talk about this subject with you. These lessons have helped me, and I hope move me closer to the kind of person I'm supposed to be. And I hope as I've talked about them, that God will do the same thing in your heart through the words that the Holy Spirit has given to us. So I want to close. If you're in this audience thinking about your soul and your relationship to God, and it's not what it ought to be, I hope before you leave this building tonight, you respond to the Lord and to the Lord's invitations and do what you ought to do to be in a right relationship with God. If you need to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, don't let anything stand in the way tonight of your faith moving you to do just that. If you've not been living for the Lord, you've been a Christian, but you've not been living for the Lord as you should, God is hoping that the strings of your heart are moving and you care about that condition and the opportunity given you right now to repent of sins and pray begging God's forgiveness will be an opportunity that you take. If we can help in any way, for you to be in a right relationship with God and help you stay that way. Let us know while we stand together to sing this invitation song.